This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This is Democracy. This week's episode is going to focus on a very difficult issue, a traumatic issue, in fact, for many people, particularly in the state of Texas. The question of how citizens, particularly women, are responding and should respond to new abortion restrictions uh, in our state, abortion restrictions that are part of a wider net of legal efforts to limit access to uh, abortions and other health needs for women in our society today. We're going to discuss not so much the making of these laws, but the effects of these laws on the ground. And we're going to focus on Texas, which has become, uh, as all of our listeners know, ground zero for these efforts being pushed to limit abortion access for women of all kinds. We're going to talk to two people today who are really at the forefront of not only trying to push back against these restrictive laws, but also out in the field trying to help women and families uh, address the challenges that these laws have created for them. And we're very fortunate that they're able to take the time to talk to us today about this experience. Uh, One of the most important parts of uh, thinking about democracy each week is actually understanding what the legal choices we make as a society, what they mean for people, often the most vulnerable people on the ground. Uh, So we're joined today by uh, Sarah Wheat, who's the Chief External Affairs Officer for Planned Parenthood of Greater Texas. Uh, Sarah, thank you for joining us. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. And Diana Limon Mercado, who's the Executive Director of Planned Parenthood Texas Votes. Diana, thank you for joining us. Thank you both. Before we turn to our discussion with Sarah and Diana, we have, as always, our scene-setting poem from Mr. Zachary Suri. This is a challenging topic, Zachary. What, what's your t- it certainly is. What's your, what's your uh, title for your poem today? About freedom. Let's hear it. The world revolves once before nightfall, and I can see it from my balcony as well as you can and she can, and that is truly what makes us human. She stands and watches as sun is molded into star, and she can never look away. She waits for evening's fray. And slipping away from the child or the partner that holds her hand and also stares up entranced by starlight, she is back in the morning. She returns in the morning, and she stands alone this time, her decision done, and watches the constellations disappear in the soft warmth of the sun. The world revolves once before nightfall, and she sees the sunrise even clearer than you do, and it doesn't care whether she's been to the clinic or to the shoreline, or to the library to read poetry about freedom. Very moving, Zachary. What is your poem about? My poem is really uh, about two things. Uh, the, the emotional experience of abortion, which I can't even begin to understand, but, but the, the, the um, importance that it can play in the lives of women, uh, but also how important and central a freedom it is to be able to control one's body and how that freedom to choose allows us to be more human and to live better lives. And how central it is to, to, to what, what freedom means for, for so many exactly. citizens, right? Uh, I think that's a great place to, to get right into this. Uh, Sarah, what, 
what changed with Senate Bill uh, 8, which is this new set of restrictions on abortions in a state that already had many restrictions uh, on abortions? Uh, How did things change? Sure. Any health center that provides abortions in Texas is unfortunately at this point accustomed to having to require new um, barriers that their patients have to overcome, put new restrictions in place in how they provide abortion care. But what happened statewide on September 1st is nothing that has been, um, nothing that we've seen in now 50 years that Roe v. Wade has been recognized. And and the extreme impact and the devastating impact um, is what is really hard to, um, to be able to em- emphasize enough. The majority of patients in Texas who are seeking an abortion uh, are informed and notified that they are now banned from accessing an abortion safely in a health center in Texas and that the Texas you know, um, law is requiring them to leave the state during a COVID pandemic. So um, the majority of patients are directly blocked from accessing an abortion safely, regardless of their circumstance. And you can imagine every patient coming in is in a particular situation that makes that the right decision for her. And we're having to be part of, um, you know, part of the state's um, restrictions and inform her that that is no longer available to her in Texas. But this, Sarah, has already been happening. You've had people coming in in the last weeks. Every single day, every single day since September 1st, the majority of patients reaching out to us are finding out that they're going to have to leave the state or they're coming in to verify. And through the mandated sonogram process, we are um, having to inform them when, in fact, they are banned from accessing an abortion here in Texas and they're forced to travel. That's terrible. Out of state. Di- Diana, you've long worked on issues with all sorts of communities in our state. Are you finding that there's a differential effect that this has for different communities? Absolutely. We know that, right, for lower income working class families who are already living paycheck to paycheck, already accessing abortion without this law in place was already. Um, a huge burden for them. Being able to find childcare because many people who are seeking abortion are already parents or being able to get time off of work because people often are working in jobs where they cannot take paid time off or they're working in, we've had, um, I've heard stories of patients that are in seasonal work and are like in a busy season, right? They're not allowed to take time off of work um, right now. And then on top of it, you put right historical Um, barriers and oppressions, um, particularly for Black communities, Black women, um, Latinas as well, who face um, right incredible barriers in accessing healthcare in general, higher rates of being uninsured, um, less access to healthcare, more discrimination in healthcare. Um, And again, you put, you know, the barriers, um, economic barriers on top of that as well. So, um, and that's not even to mention young people who in Texas are Um, We already have parental consent requirement laws, and in Texas, there are additional requirements that if a young person is not able to get their parents' consent, um, they have to go through a judicial process called judicial bypass to access abortion. So now, not only are they, you know, cut off at the six-week point, um, but they still have to go through that judicial bypass process and say that they're even able to get their judicial bypass. The court grants them um, the right to consent to their um, own abortion, 
um, how is a young person in that situation expected to go out of state, um, right, and navigate an out of state system to access healthcare on top of it? So, um, you know, it is just barrier on top of barrier and oppression on top of oppression um, for the people who are already the most marginalized. But I also just want to highlight, like, you know, we're obviously talking a lot about um, women, but, you know, that access to abortion and reproductive health and rights does not just impact women. Um, there's also trans folks and non-binary folks um, as well who similarly face a number of barriers and access um, to healthcare issues. And then on top of that, um, having to deal with this as well. Yeah, that's that's clearly a very important point to make as well. Um, could you briefly, uh, Sarah, describe for our listeners how how devastating it can be for for a person who needs an abortion to to, to be denied access to that abortion? Yeah, and I think this has been um, some of the most these have been some of the most difficult days. I can tell you on behalf of our staff that are having these conversations with patients that are there with the patients. And then having to, instead of providing them the healthcare service that they're trained to provide, skilled to provide, instead they're having to, you know, talk with them about what their options are and where they might be able to go. Um, the as Diana described, like Texas already has deeply stigmatizing and patronizing um, and shaming restrictions that are built in. Um, you know, for example. Uh, even though most people seeking an abortion have already, um, you know, had a pregnancy, uh, you, state law requires that you wait 24 hours and think about what decision you're making, even though clearly somebody who has already been through pregnancy is completely aware of what, you know, what the decision is and what the impact is. And so just to have that, that autonomy, that your dignity stripped away and just to know that, you know, you don't have the right to make what is one of the most fundamental, basic and intensely um, important decisions about your health and your life. It's um, it's it's really been a, a trauma for our staff and for the patients having to have these conversations all day since September one. I can imagine. And, and Diana, what, what are you hearing and seeing? Um, you know, from the healthcare side, everything that Sarah just shared, and as Planned Parenthood Texas votes, we um, um, advocate for um, policy and work in elections, um, you know, representing the interests of Planned Parenthood uh, patients and health centers, of which Planned Parenthood Greater Texas is one, and Sarah has, share, Sarah has shared several stories from. Um, at Planned Parenthood, you know, Gulf Coast in the Houston area, they are hearing very similar stories with patients who come in to get their um, pregnancy dated and see if they're eligible. They come in on um, that first day, that first appointment, they get their sonogram done, they're legally able um, at that point to get the abortion, but state law requires 24-hour waiting period. And overnight, um, as the patient goes home to comply with another law, they come back the next day. And at that point, there's cardiac activity and the health center staff is having to tell them they're no longer eligible. And, and just having having been required to wait overnight is now forcing that patient to go out of state and navigate an out of state system and all of the travel and you know financial burdens that that puts on them. And that is, as Sarah said, very traumatizing, particularly um, for patients, um, their families, and for the health center staff, you know, health centers, staff and providers have trained their entire professional lives to be able to provide compassionate, non-judgmental, safe care. Um, and overnight, they are no longer 
able to provide that to people. Um, so it's devastating on many, many levels. And as Sarah said, it's traumatic for everybody, not only, um, you know, as we're hearing the stories. And like I said, for patients, first and foremost, and providers and families around them, and then as advocates, um, you know, trying to figure out where we really go from here, um, you know, is it's a tough road ahead in Texas for, you know, abortion access and reproductive health and rights. Um, and thankfully, we have some very smart lawyers at all different levels and organizations, um, you know, working as fast as they can to try and find some relief for patients. And, and I want to talk about what comes next in a few minutes. But before we get to that, I, I wanted to follow up, if I could, Diana, and ask you, we, we often hear about those who don't have access to legal reproductive health care and abortion um, taking measures into their own hands in ways that are less safe. Uh, and that certainly was the case before Roe v. Wade in 1973. Um, are, are we seeing some of that as well now? There are definitely a lot of conversations have, happening around self-managed abortion. Self-managed abortion um, can be safe, um, but as you said, not everybody has access to the you know precise medication that they need and to the pre precise medical support and education and information that they need to be able to do that. And I have heard stories um, as well from health centers, you know, of patients who are just looking online for anything that they can find from, you know, unverifiable resources. Um, so that can be scary for people. And um, unfortunately, our government has put us here where people are, you know, pursuing every option that they have to be able to simply make the best decision for themselves and for their families. Um, and it's, you know, it's definitely a very tough time. And there are lots of organizations helping many people in different ways. As Sarah mentioned, you know, health centers in Texas are still able to provide um, legal abortion up until six weeks. That does not give many people much time and actually takes the decision out of the hands for most people. There are abortion funds who are working to help people get out of state um, with financial resources and travel support um, and um, working with patient navigators to help connect them to other providers. And there are other groups as well, um, you know, trying to get people education um, information if somebody is seeking to um, pursue self-managed abortion. And, and and that leads me, Sarah, to ask a, a question uh, about par Planned Parenthood, if I could. Um, what is it like as an organization, and this is not a new problem, you've been under attack from many sources for a long time, but, but to be attacked in this way, I mean, so much of this law seems to be aimed at, at, at what your, your organization does. H how do you as an organization react to that? Yeah, and I think... Um you know, I think that's that's a great question. And I think, you know, what we find interesting and, you know, Diana and I have both worked in this field um, through several legislative sessions at this point. And so we have seen how, you know, reproductive health care has been weaponized. It has been politicized. And often it's sort of communicated as though this is only about abortion and it's only about Planned Parenthood, as though somehow like if Planned Parenthood was not here and if abortion was banned, as though that would be the end of the political goals that these, you know, politicians have been driving. And what we see is, you know, abortion is really the sort of front facing talking point that our opponents use. But if you peel that back and spend any time looking at their policies, they are eager to, 
you know, create barriers to birth control, that this is the same, you know, same elected officials who, you know, refuse to expand Medicaid or in any way help address the, you know, uninsured health crisis that so many citizens have and the have done really the minimal to even give, um, you know, to look like they're paying attention to the maternal mortality rates, particularly for black women in Texas. Um, and, you know, sex education, you know, that's really such an important part of all this and making sure young people are empowered with the information they need to, you know, make decisions and understand consent and be empowered to, you know, live, live the lives and make decisions they want to. Every ask, you know, there are just so many, um, so many goals here that, that, you know, conveniently get described as abortion. And then people think, oh, it's this political thing and it's abortion as Planned Parenthood. But it's it's really a fundamental um, and complete, you know, disrespect for reproductive health care and a total devaluation of um, of so many, so many people in marginalized communities who are underserved by this political, you know, system. Um, that's such a, a succinct and powerful description of the political dynamics. Um, how has your organization survived? How do you um, how do you keep going under under attack like that? You know, and Diana definitely jump in here as well. But you know, I think if you look at when Planned Parenthood was founded, right? Due to powerful politicians, birth control was illegal, and to even share information about Ill- about birth control and planning pregnancies was banned. And you know, Planned Parenthood was created at that time by breaking the law to provide birth control to, in particular, you know, um, you know, uh, low income women who were desperate for information about how to plan and space their pregnancies. So we're very familiar, unfortunately, with powerful politicians trying to dictate, you know, reproductive health care decisions and access to information. Um, but it is, um, you know, it is, I think, because of how vulnerable Roe v. Wade and this basic fundamental protection of our constitutional right to access an abortion feels very much at a at a vulnerable tipping point right now. So, you know, I think these are really, um, you know, these are really critical times. And I think we're, uh, we've got a lot of concerns about what's ahead. Have we seen an outpouring uh, of support from those communities that um, support the right to choose and have access to resources, Diana? Yeah, um, I mean, there's definitely been a lot of support um, coming out. Um, you know, as I mentioned, we have a number of abortion funds here in Texas that um, are working in collaboration to fundraise so that they can provide financial support to get patients out of um, state and make sure that they have accommodations to be able to do that. Um, Planned Parenthood obviously um, is continuing to operate health centers and provide care um, both in state and then other affiliates out of state as well. And Whole Woman's Health um, is another abortion provider here. Um, in state, as well as a number of advocacy groups, including our our, our organization, Planned Parenthood Texas Votes, um, Aval, um, Texas Freedom Network, and others who work on it. There's definitely, um, you know, we really appreciate the support um, and encouragement of people who want to be invested in this, um, you know, fight right now and for the long haul with us. Um, but what we know is ultimately right there is now that abortion is, is illegal past six weeks in Texas, there is no amount of money here and now that can make that legal again. Um, 
And so what we ultimately need, right, is to change the lawmakers um, who made these decisions. And that is a long-term investment um, that we deeply need people to be committed to, um, not only financially, but um, in terms of political advocacy and being engaged, being registered to vote, voting in every election at every level of government, um, right? The stigmatization of abortion starts early um, in many people's lives and communities and political careers, um, right? And permeates our entire culture. And so it's something that we have to work against all the time um, and need to make sure that we're educating voters on early and keeping them engaged in the process and keeping people who care about the issue, this issue, not only engaged, you know, right now, but again, really committed to the long-term, um, you know, fights and elections ahead in every single cycle and at all levels of government so that we can undo, um, you know, the harm that's been done and not only undo the harm, right, that gets us back to um, sort of the status quo before, which was Roe v. Wade, but Roe v. Wade is really ultimately right the floor of abortion access. Many people, even though abortion was still legal in Texas, um, legal didn't mean that it was accessible for many people for all the reasons we named, right? There's still financial barriers um, and travel barriers and child care issues um, in marginalized communities and lack of health care coverage and all those other issues um, that really need to be expanded. So this is a, a multi-year, multi-cycle, multi-decades uh, fight ahead of us. And so um, we appreciate the support here and now and really encourage people to get in and stay involved for the long road ahead and talk to their friends and family um, about how they can get involved as well. Diana, are you finding that um, more people are getting involved, that this has been a wake-up call for more people? Um, many people definitely have gotten involved um, at this moment. It's always, you know, sort of unfortunate that this is what it took. And unfortunately, we have another case um, out of Mississippi, the Dobbs, um, case that is being heard at the Supreme Court on December 1st. And then we expect um, a ruling out of that case in the uh, late spring, early summer next year. And, you know, that will unfortunately, could unfortunately be another moment where we see um, a spike in interest um, and people being outraged um, because right row is on the line um, in this case and basically undoing um, the protections that we've had in place across the country uh, for decades now are on the line. And so, like I said, we just really encourage people to get involved, stay involved. Um, you know, outrage and um, anger and urgency are typically what motivate people to come into the fights at this moment. But what keeps people coming back is hope and community. And, you know, that's what we're here to provide and, um, you know, do every single day by uh, building up new leaders and young leaders and helping people find their voice and tell their story in this movement, um, getting them comfortable with advocating at the Capitol and city halls and um, even considering themselves running for office maybe one day. Uh, so on that note, Sarah, what can our listeners do uh, to, to help those uh, suffering and, and hopefully maybe make a change in the law? Yeah, you know, that is a great question. And and as Diana said, we are really, um, it, it gives us a ton of hope to see how many people re have reached out. And we've seen people, you know, there's so many, there, there's something for everybody to do at, in this moment. So whether it is connect with um, one of the 
abortion funds who are, you know, working in this, you know, at such an important time, whether it's, you know, Planned Parenthood, Texas Votes, Avows, Texas Freedom Network. I mean, there's a lot of um, really important organizations who are showing up and, you know, making sure that we are going to be continuing to hold elected officials accountable. You know, we've seen business owners real creative about, um, you know, lifting up their support for abortion access. Um, we've seen people who had abortions 30 years ago and never told it, right? Write their story and have it published, you know, for everybody to read. So I think, you know, this is for anybody who, um, you know, knows somebody who's had an abortion and was grateful to have access to that abortion, which most of us do, you know, this, this is, um, there's just too much at risk not to lean in and not to step up and be a part of speaking out because, um, we absolutely cannot, um, we can't continue with this law as it is statewide. The impact is too devastating and it's moving us too far back. Zachary, are you finding that uh, for your uh, generation and for other um, politically aware uh, young people like yourself, is, is this an issue that's drawing a lot of attention? I think it is. I, I think it's um, it's an issue that that seems so close to our lives, especially as as young people growing up in Texas. Um, and 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 sometimes we, we we lose the sort of personal aspect of this, and we get too caught up in the political machinations. Um, and I think that that this moment has been a really really important reminder of of the amount of suffering that happens when we don't make the right decision. Right, right. I I think uh, Sarah and Diana, you've both given us first of all a, an amazing amount of information here that's helpful. Uh, you've inspired us, uh, and and I wanted to close building on just what Zachary said with asking each of you to maybe just share uh, with our listeners, if you would, what keeps you going? Because I mean, as Diana said, this is a long, hard fight, and there's been a lot of bad news recently. Um, you're both bringing hope in your in your demeanor, in your. Uh, energy. Uh, but, but what keeps you going? I ask this because I'm often asked by listeners of ours, you know, how do you stay optimistic? How do you avoid despondence? And, and, and I wonder if you might share that as, as a, a kind of closing thought uh, that each of you might have for our listeners. Sarah, do you want to go first, maybe? Yeah, sure. And, you know, I think, um, you know, that's definitely a question I've heard before. And I have heard, isn't it hard to be working, you know, to um, advocate for you know, abortion access and reproductive health care in Texas. And it is challenging. And yet every time we face a huge new, you know, huge new devastating setback like this one, I'm, I'm continually amazed by the support that we do see, um, you know, whether it was, um, you know, we've seen just incredible actions taken by, you know, high school students or whether it was the 12-year-old who organized like the rally at the Capitol or, you know, the valedictorian speech who pulled out the secret speech and spoke out on behalf of abortion access. You know, we do not underestimate um, the commitment that people have to this issue and how fundamental it is to our, um, you know, to how we live and who we are. And so I'm, I am hopeful. I am optimistic because there's just too much at stake here to not be. Yeah, I um, I do same as Sarah. I get asked this question so much, and I'm like, I don't know how do how do we keep doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Where are we pulling this all from constantly? Um, 
You know, for me, it is really my own personal story, my family's story, um, because it just connects me so deeply to what I know patients are experiencing on the ground and their families are. My uh, my grandma and my grandparents were teen parents. Um, my grandma had three kids by the time she was 21. Um, and right, nobody ever talked to her about um, sex, sexuality, um, birth control, you know, any of those things. Um, and she always, um, you know, she eventually, um, turned to the Planned Parenthood, um, here in Austin. And that was, you know, sort of one of the stories she would always tell us about how she was actually able, right, to take, to, to take control of her life, um, and to, right, then plan her pregnancies of what she didn't want to have anymore, um, after that. And then my mom was a teen parent also. My mom, and my dad had me when they were 16 years old and they weren't given any options. Um, you know, they were just told, um, you're going to have this baby and you're going to get married. And, um, you know, I, you know, despite my parents' best efforts, um, who did teach me, you know, some about birth control, um, and sex and, um, you know, all of these other topics that weren't discussed with them, I became pregnant at, um, 19 years old. Um, and it was an unplanned pregnancy. Um, I was actually in the process of escaping an abusive relationship and found myself pregnant by an abuser. And, um, I went, I had been alienated by my family through that process of that relationship. I, uh, went home to my mom's house and I still remember, um, it was nighttime. It was dark. It was raining. The porch light was off. And I knocked on the door and my mom turned on the light and I was there crying. And she said, come in. And um, I said, I'm pregnant. And she said, come in. And I sat down with her and I talked to her about everything that had happened that I was been through and what I wanted to do, um, you know, with my life. Like I wanted to escape this relationship and be able to take control of that decision. And this pregnancy, um, right, was like making everything worse for trying to be able to make the best decision, the best decision for me and how I could live a safe and healthy life. And I asked my mom, I said, if you were me, what would you do? And she said, if I was you, I would have an abortion. And um, back then, you know, 20 years ago, we still had the yellow pages. So I literally went to the yellow pages and looked up a for abortion and found a health center. And my mom drove me and she held my hand and she drove me home. And I got very compassionate, non-judgmental care. And from there, I was, you know, able to reconcile with my family and go on to the life that I have now, which is I was able to be the first one in my family to go to college and graduate college and now have two beautiful children and a wonderful husband and a very healthy relationship. And I'm able to do this every day for all of those other people who are in similar or very different or whatever circumstance they're in. But they need an abortion and every abortion is a needed abortion and every person deserves to have the right to make that decision for themselves. Diana, thank you for sharing that with us. Yes, thank you. Um, that's such a powerful story and it, it resonates, I think, with the experiences of so many people and it reminds us why the stakes are so uh, important here, as, as both you and Sarah have said, and also um, how, uh, how we can all draw energy from from these experiences and, and see the possibility in, in, in not simply putting up, but actually changing, changing these laws around us. Um, 
I, I hope I hope for listeners today, this has been an opportunity to get more of an on the ground experience, uh, at least hearing uh, what people are experiencing on the ground. And I hope that we as a democracy can learn to be more attentive to these experiences. As we say every week, our democracy grows and is reshaped by the actions of individuals. And uh, I think we've been fortunate to hear about uh, how individuals are struggling and meeting those struggles with um new activism in our society today. Uh, Sarah Weed and Diana Limon Mercado, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you both. Really enjoyed the conversation and really enjoyed Zachary's poem. Too. Yes, thank you. And Zachary, thank you for your poem, of course, and for your insights and uh, thoughtfulness. And most of all, thank you to our listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.